Greetings, Dog Nation. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me today as we get started with our 2023 season preview. And just like last year, our preview series is called It's Saturday in Athens. It is a great time of the year. Everything is possible as we approach the 2023 college football season. Fall practice starts this week, and our preview series of the 2023 season also starts this week. Again, thank you for joining me on the show today. I wanted to take a little bit of time here at the beginning to kind of explain my thought process for how I want to deliver the show this year. Um, The preview show will come out every Saturday between today and the opening weekend of the season. I the, the last show will drop on what other people are going to call week zero. We may add a little bit of a week zero preview in there, but uh, generally speaking, for the first few weeks here as we get through fall practice, I've got a format that I'm, I'm planning on using that's going to incorporate not only a look at the Georgia Bulldogs for the 2023 season, but also uh, a little bit more of a look around the nation than I have in the past few years. So why am I going to start looking around the nation a little bit? Well, the answer is because, frankly, there's just not that much interesting stuff to talk about with Georgia for the first third of this season. So rather than trying to convince you that we need to focus on the Ball State game week two, I think it's just going to be more entertaining, more fun for me, honestly, which is, you know, as I've been very honest in the past, that's why I do this. It's going to be more fun for me to try to look around the country a little bit. You know, if you don't know, Georgia is going to get absolutely slaughtered in the media. All fall practice, all fall camp, all the way through, you know, the beginning part of the season, you're going to hear it over and over and over that Georgia has the easiest schedule in the entire country, which is not true. But you're going to, uh, uh, of the uh, of the teams that are in contention, Georgia's schedule is absolutely not on par with some of the other ones that we see around the nation. And it's a very simple reason. We had Oklahoma, a trip to Oklahoma scheduled for week two. And once Oklahoma was going to join the conference, uh, the SEC said, hey, you got to cancel that home and home series. And the reason you had to do that is because the first game, which was to be played this year in Norman, would have been a non-conference game, just like the the schedule was supposed to, you know, that that's what the plan was. It was a non-conference home and home that had been scheduled. So the problem is that SEC has expanded and that Oklahoma will be a part of the conference by the time that return game was supposed to happen I believe it was 2027 but I I might be off on that Uh, so since both parts of the home and home weren't going to be able to be completed before Oklahoma joined the conference that series had to be canceled which meant Georgia had to go find somebody that was willing to play them in week two this year now there's been another level of criticism about Georgia's inability to find a game. And, you know, a lot of people have looked and said, well, they could have played this team, they could have played that team. Uh, The other team has a say in this, right? (laughs) Like, you can't just say, hey, you have an open date, you're playing us now. They had to work something out. And I, I don't think anybody who's really being logical would have thought for a second that Kirby Smart was afraid to play anybody. Uh, especially in the the second week of season, but just the reality of how it it worked out, 
Ball State was the team that Georgia ended up having to schedule. So uh, it is not a very fun schedule, frankly, uh, when you when you factor in that this is the last year of the SEC East. The East is down as it has been since Georgia started dominating it in 2017. So outside of you know the Tennessee game, a home game with South Carolina, and a crossover game with Ole Miss, there's just not that much to really be excited about on this schedule. So all that to say, um, I think that's why we, we, we need to look a little bit more broadly, just so we have some content for this first couple of months, the preview show. But then the other part of this is that I really think college football as a whole is going to be extremely interesting all across the nation. For the first time in a very long time, the Southeastern Conference, the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10, and the Pac-12 are going to be really interesting. It, it there's a lot going on, you know, even today as I'm recording getting ready for it. It looks like Colorado's going to be moving back to the Big 12. They just moved to the Pac-12 a few years ago. They're going back to the Big 12. Now what does the Pac-12 do? And even outside of realignment, you've got the college football playoff starting next year. There's a lot of stuff going on in college football. And I just think this season in particular, because of the changes that you've had at some of the major programs, uh, specifically at the quarterback position, it's a wide open year. So I, I think if you are just a Georgia fan that likes to listen to this, just give me a chance to, to maybe convince you that it, it's worth paying attention to college football as a whole this year and not just the SEC and not just Georgia. So today's show is going to be pretty uh, straightforward. We're going to do our state of the program. And this is, I, I do this every year. It's usually the first show that I do. Uh, we just talk about where the dogs are, how things are going and across the board. We'll throw some numbers at you, but we're going to talk about the good and we're going to talk about the bad. So if you don't want to hear the bad, I guess you can skip that part when we get to it in just a few minutes. And then we're going to start with our first of five power conference previews. Uh, today, we're talking about the ACC. So that's what the show is going to be today. As I've already said a couple times, I really appreciate you joining me. If you're listening, I hope you'll go ahead and subscribe and be a part of a view from the couch for the entire year. Uh, usually it's one to two shows a week. It's not a huge commitment. So hopefully you can uh, subscribe, enjoy the show, and uh, let's get started with our state of the program for the University of Georgia. Every year when the president of the United States gives the State of the Union address, they'll figure out a way, no matter which party, no matter how things are going in the country, you figure out a way early in the speech to shoehorn in that the state of our union is strong. I feel like uh, it's, it's a little obvious to say, but the state of the program right now for the University of Georgia is as strong as it can be. Georgia, the program is at the top of college football, but in a way... You've got a tale of two arenas, in a way, that of what you're dealing with, on the field and off the field. We're going to start with the positive and talk about on the field. Obviously, back-to-back national championships. Um, and at least right now, we don't do a lot of recruiting. I'm going to talk a little bit of recruiting today. Uh, right now, the number one class lined up for 2024. Um Kirby Smart, 81-15 and 15 in seven seasons at Georgia, two national titles, two SEC championships, three appearances in the college football playoff, five SEC Eastern Division championships. Uh, Georgia's won under Kirby the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Orange Bowl. Uh, since 2017, 
Kirby, Kirby obviously started in 2016. Since 2017, so Kirby's second season, Georgia hasn't finished lower uh, than seventh in the nation. The Dogs come into the 2023 season on a 17-game winning streak that dates back to that loss against Alabama in the SEC championship game in 2021. And since the start of 2021, Georgia's 29-1. and The last time the Dogs lost a game in the regular season was November 7th of 2020, and that was to Florida and in Jacksonville. And since 2017, again, Kirby's second season when this kind of era kind of began, Georgia's 33-1 and at home, with the only loss being that double overtime loss to South Carolina in 2019. Now, as I said, I really don't like to do a lot of recruiting talk. I, I'll be honest with you, I don't really follow recruiting that closely. I'll read stories every once in a while, but I'm definitely not one of these people that are on the message boards, and I already know some names for 2025 and 2026. It just... I love the game. I love watching the games. I love watching polls. I, I, I like the in-season action. Uh, but the recruiting stuff, just it, it, it's so never-ending and it's so tedious, you know, to, to, to think how much I would have to get invested in what a 17-year-old person is going to decide to do. Um, I just don't like following recruiting that much. But the story of this team and where the program is, I, I think you can't tell that story unless you acknowledge – that the 2024 recruiting class is shaping up to be potentially the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football since they started tracking this stuff about 10 or 15 years ago, right? So as of right now, and I'm using Rivals, there's there's a bunch of different, you can use on three, you can use a bunch of different places, but just for, you know, consistency sake, I use Rivals. The number one player in the nation, Dylan Riola, Quarterback from Phoenix has moved to Buford. He's committed uh, to be uh, a Georgia Bulldog. We've got the number 12 player in the country, inside linebacker Justin Williams, who just uh, committed last week. The number 19 player in the country, Peyton Woodard, a safety from California. The number 22 player in the country, Ellis Robinson, is a quarterback from Florida. Uh, Ryan Polisi, who is the like the number eight quarterback in this class, even though Rayola has committed <laughs> and he's like for real committed. All these guys at this point seem like they're actually committed. Um, Ryan Polisi, who has always wanted to go to Georgia, he's coming too. So we, two of the top 10 quarterbacks in this recruiting class are both coming to Georgia. Um, Georgia's the kind of the leader in the clubhouse with two more five stars who's going to be committing before the beginning of the season. Um, the gap, and this this is where I wanted to get to. Right now, based on the rivals' rankings, the gap between Georgia's number one class and number two Ohio State is larger than the gap between Ohio State at number two and number 11 Texas A&M. So Georgia is not only out in front – they are way out in front. And part of that is because they have a big class. They're, you know, because of attrition on the roster, they're going to take a lot of people in this class. So it, it, part of it is a numbers game. But also, that top end strength of this class, that's three five stars with two more potentially on the way. That is an absolute haul. Um, and, and Georgia's just killing it on the recruiting trail. And they're doing it all over the country. And they're still doing it in the state. So, um, frankly, on the field, I think it's fair to say, and I, I am 
very aware of the gravity of what I'm about to say, but even going back to the early 80s, I don't think there's an argument that the program, where it is on the field right now, the program's never been in this good a position before. So that's the good side. Now, just for a few minutes, we're going to have to at least acknowledge the bad side. On one of my shows uh, right after the end of the season, you know, I talked about the fact that uh, the tragic accident that happened on the night of the uh, national championship celebration where a player and a staffer uh, were, well, a few players were involved in a, uh, a car accident and a player and a staffer lost their life. Since then, there's been accusations, there's been lawsuits, editorials, rebuttals, firings, there's been institutional changes. A lot of things have happened uh, in, in the last few months off the field that I feel like it would be, you know, convenient maybe to ignore, but maybe not right to ignore. You can't say all the good stuff. You can't just acknowledge all the good stuff without recognizing that there's also some challenges going on. So, you know, I graduated from UGA with a journalism degree, so I feel like maybe this is more interesting to me than it is for other people. But I feel like I want to talk a little bit about the AJC situation. A lot of people who are in Dog Nation have really started uh, just bagging on the AJC, you know, and, and it's it's not unpopular in this day and age just to crap on media in general. Uh, and I completely understand that feeling. But the reality is that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering the University of Georgia football program, covering the University of Georgia in particular, is a huge responsibility that they have and they need to cover UGA. The reality of what unchecked power can do. I, I genuinely believe, now whether or not you think we have an unbiased media anymore, that's obviously the issue here, but the unchecked power is not a good thing in our society. So UGA should be something that the AJC covers and, and asks hard questions and looks at and digs and pokes around and tries to figure things out. Uh, they have a beat writer, Chip Towers, who's a UGA grad who has covered the team for a long time and everything I've ever seen or heard from Chip he, he seems like a an honest guy. He's willing, you know, going back to the Rick era when things weren't necessarily always as good as we would hope that they would have been. Uh, Chip would ask tough questions, and, and, and he was fair, but he's tough. The guy that was writing all these articles, Alan Judd, is, is not a beat writer on the UGA football beat or on the university beat in general. Uh, he doesn't cover higher education. He's an investigative reporter. And based on what it just kind of going back and trying to look at everything, it seems like after the crash, uh, the AJC assigned Alan Judd to be an investigative reporter that would dig into all things Athens, everything going on in Athens, all the things going on in and around the program related to the crash and related to everything else that's been going on. So um, that makes sense to me. You know, you wouldn't want to put the beat writer for the team there. That puts that would have put Chip Towers in a terrible position, and that's also not his job. There's a there's a big difference in the journalism world between being a reporter and being more of an investigative journalist. So if you've ever seen the movie Spotlight, you you know, investigative journalism is more of a a, a slow prod kind of thing. You you do tons of interviews, you do tons of research to maybe produce two or three stories that you have a long time. Whereas like a beat writer, Chip's got to put out content every single week. He's got to be covering what Kirby Smart says at his press conference every week. He's talking to players and putting out stories every week. He's going to every game. He's 
asking questions after every game. He's writing a game story. He's writing an opinion story the next day about the game. And then he starts previewing the next week on Monday. So it's just a completely different form of journalism, but it's also just a completely different assignment. So it was, it was logical that they would find somebody else to do this particular job and dig into what's going on. Now, there are definitely parts, if you look at everything that's out there, there's parts of this that don't look good for UGA. Specifically having, you know, people associated with the team at the crash site and and kind of what seems to be running interference or obstruction between, you know, the police officers on the scene and the players that were on the scene. Now, depending on your point of view, is that somebody obstructing things that is going on or is that somebody there supporting the players? Obviously, the university says that that the individual that was there is there in a role of support. That That's that's his job is to be there. to Anytime the, the students need anything, he's there to help them, to advise them, to advocate for them. Um, so that's not a good look, right? If you want to be skeptical about that, you've got somebody interceding on behalf of the players. And, it, you know, the, the, the idea that Alan Judd was pushing for months was the idea of this, there's a cover-up. It's Everything's being covered up, right? I don't know exactly how something would be covered up when there's a story in the Banner Herald or the AJC every other week about it, but that was the, the, the context or the thought process. Now we have text messages from UGA officials that staffers were given permission to take the, the, the rental vehicles home at times. You've got, on top of all that, every other week you've got some UGA football player getting pulled over going 100 miles an hour somewhere in the Athens-Oconee area, right? So all of these things add up to just a lot of off-the-field stuff. It reminds me back kind of the 2006, 2007, I was a student at that time. The the marijuana thing went through the program, you know, really, really big. And it seemed like every offseason you had two or three players that were going to miss two games or four games because they had gotten caught with weed. And it was just, you just kind of waited on it. And, and I'll be honest, it's been a couple of weeks since anybody's gotten pulled over for speeding. And I just kind of checked Twitter expecting to see, okay, who's it going to be this time? Because it's, it's not a problem that they've solved. And Kirby Smart's been very open about that. He said, I need to do better. We have to do better. And it's not something that's fixed yet. And I, and I have to get it fixed. What happened with the AJC more recently and why Alan Judd got fired last week was that he stopped reporting, he stopped investigating, and he was making the facts and then fit his narrative. And I think, you know, in general, I don't want to go on a completely different path here, but this is the problem, I think, where journalism is going, is you've got journalists who are close, they know things, or they suspect things, but they can't necessarily prove them, but they convince themselves that they're doing the world a service by insinuating, by kind of alluding, hinting, or, you know, even without evidence, I'm going to prove my point because I know I'm right. And even if I can't prove that I'm right, I know I'm right. And if I, if I put this out there, the truth will eventually come to light. Obviously, that is not the way that journalism is supposed to work. That's not the way truth works. And that's where Alan Judd got himself into trouble because the last few stories he wrote were full of conjecture. And rather than informing his readers like through facts, um, he made opinionated statements that then asked rhetorical questions 
and tried to lead readers to draw a negative opinion about the UGA coaches, the players, the administrators, everybody associated with the program that weren't all necessarily based on fact. And the last story, the headline, and I don't know how it works anymore. You know, back in the day, editors wrote headlines and and writers wrote stories. So I don't know that, that Judd wrote the headline, but the headline on the story was that the University of Georgia football team essentially uh, supports players who had been con- are, uh, accused of sexual misconduct. And this was the point where the university kind of changed the way they were handling things. By and large, you're not going to get the university to comment on anything, good, bad, or ugly. You know, Kirby Smart being the face of the program, you ever listen to a Kirby Smart press conference, I've always said he never lies, but he doesn't always t- say anything. And he won't tell you if he's concerned about something, right? Like, Oh, how you feel about the offensive line? He's not going to come out and say, Oh, I feel terrible about it. I don't think we're any good. But if he says something, you can, you can take that. That's actually his opinion, right? Somebody asks about the offensive line and he'll probably deflect and he'll say, what do you think about the offensive line? You know, he'll get kind of combative with reporters. That's what coaches seem to do now. But, In this situation, the story that Judd wrote alleged that there were 11 different players that had been accused of sexual misconduct that were allowed to stay on the team and continue playing. The insinuation being that the value that was placed on winning was way more important than any moral standard that the players, the program, or the university had. That, you know, win at all costs. And it's just very kind of a trope, right? Like that's a movie. You you could see somebody writing a movie where it's like, oh, it's just, it's all about winning. It's all about performance. The players, the people that get hurt, it's it, it, none of that stuff matters All as long as you win. And that was the story he was writing. It's the story he wrote. But the problem was, is that he couldn't back it up with facts. And when the university reached out to him directly and said, hey, you said 11, what are you talking about? Who, who, what, where are these numbers coming from? He never responded at all to the university. So then the university went to the unprecedented step of publishing a nine page rebuttal, essentially, that poked holes in the guy's story. And I sat there and it is long. If you haven't read it, I don't know that I would suggest it at this point because I'm about to tell you how the story ends. Um, but they went point by point through that story and they just tore it apart with facts. And Immediately, the AJC came out and said, "Okay, we're reviewing it." They, in in the most odd part of this story to me, they had Alan Judd write a story about the rebuttal of his story. It was very strange. Um, but the two big things that ended up costing Alan Judd his job was the fact that nobody can figure out where eleven came from, and it's such a weird number. I was going to say it's an odd number. It's definitely an odd number. <laughs> Uh, It's also a prime number if you're a math nerd at all, but it's a strange number to pick 11 without the ability to go, I was talking about this person, this person, this person, this person, right? Like that would just be what you would do. The, The story that he wrote alluded to two different players, one that never actually played after the allegations were made and one where the allegations that were made ended up basically the the athens Clark County Police Department said that those allegations were not substantial or substantive and they weren't going to pursue anything so that the university and the the team decided not to pursue anything with that player. Um, All of this to say that between the, 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 
the, them saying that there was 11 players that had been allowed to continue playing. Um, and then a quote that essentially there was an interview with one of the two players that the story talked about. Athens Clark County police officer was doing what I think was like a 50 minute interview. And Judd took a quote from like the 26th minute and like the 39th minute and put them together in his story that in a, in a way that made it seem like the police officer was like advising the player and that the player's status as a player at UGA was why he was getting special treatment. So those two things ultimately kind of led the AJC when they finished their investigation to fire Alan Judd for um, not meeting the journalistic standards that the AJC uh, has in place. So I I know I went through that a lot. Maybe I spent more time on the bad than good, but I'm not going to talk about this anymore (laughs) for the rest of the season. I'm going to talk about how good things are uh, a lot for the rest of the season. So let me just wrap it all up by saying that as as good this is as good as it can get on the field, frankly. Um, but there are some real challenges facing Kirby and the program off the field. And as somebody that lives here, I can just go ahead and tell you the speeding needs to stop. Okay, now even the speeding part, I think Alan Judd wrote a story that one of the players had been caught on campus doing a hundred and a fifty-five. Well, if you are anywhere around here, you know there's nowhere on campus that's fifty-five. <laughs> Like no roads on campus are 55. You couldn't go 55 on most of the roads on campus, but the guy had gotten pulled over on Atlanta highway going a hundred miles an hour in a 55. Well, that's not campus. So, so much of this is somebody that, you know, just doesn't live here. But from somebody who does live here, I will say these dudes need to slow down. I understand they have nice cars. I understand most of them have NIL deals. They have extra cash sitting around. I also understand they're 19, 20, 21 year old kids with really nice cars and they're probably going to go fast. I'm sure we all went fast when we were younger. And as we've gotten older, we've slowed down, but we got to get this under control. Kirby. I mean, I would imagine with, with practice starting this next week, I think probably there's going to be a meeting on the first day of practice where some dirty words are said but it's made abundantly clear to these players all sitting together in the same room that uh, you can walk, you can't speed anymore. You can ride a bicycle, you can skip, you can saunter, you can do whatever you want, but you better slow down. I don't think Kirby's going to come out publicly and say the next person that speeds is getting kicked off the team or anything ridiculous like that because I don't think one person's a mistake if they make even if they're dumb and they make that mistake now, why should everybody else's previous mistakes like make this next person's mistake so much worse or be treated so much worse? But as as a program, they got to get this together and they've got to they've got to solve this problem uh, of the speeding. And you would think, given what happened back in January, it it wouldn't be hard to get these guys to slow down. I mean, speed and alcohol, but speed played a huge factor in that crash and why that, you know, two people walked away and two people didn't, these guys got to slow down. I know they think they're invincible, but obviously they should know better than anybody that they're not. Okay. Put that behind us. We're not going to talk about that anymore. Let's pivot now and let's talk about expectations. We talked about the state of the program. What are the expectations for 2023? We're all thinking it. You look at the schedule. We talked about the schedule earlier. 
The expectations for 2023 are pretty simple. Georgia should be 12-0 and in the regular season, in the SEC championship game, and making the college football playoff. That should be the expectation. Win the SEC and make the playoff. That's probably going to be the expectation, I don't know, until Kirby decides he's not going to be here anymore. So what are we talking, 15, 20 years? That That's going to be the expectation now. We, we've moved past going, well, I don't know, with this schedule, maybe – Maybe 10 and 2 in the Outback Bowl would be okay. Those days aren't coming back. Thank goodness. Um, I, I really believe that anything short of the college football playoff with this schedule would be an absolute disappointment. Um, is it reasonable? Now, th- this is kind of a different thought process, right? I, I said earlier, winners of 17 games in a row. You're not supposed to win that many games in a row in college football. 29 and 1 over the last couple of years. You're not supposed to win. that much um but georgia has and so is it reasonable to think that you can get 18 to 22 year old kids uh excited about playing ball state and excited about playing vanderbilt and missouri and all of these teams every single week without making enough mistakes to lose a game probably not frankly um you know, I, I don't think we can be dumb and pretend that there were no chances to lose. I mean, there were multiple chances to lose last year, specifically at Missouri and in the Peach Bowl. And Georgia just didn't lose those games. And that's great. You know, we're all very happy that they didn't, or at least most of us that listen to this are probably very happy that they didn't lose those games. But we'd be fools to think that we're going to go through this entire season when every game by 30 and there's just nobody that can touch us. There's a human element of this that obviously – plays a huge role in what the results will be at the end of the season. Now, the reality though is that if you just look at the look at everything on the whole, not factoring in week to week injuries and other teams, you know, preseason, that's what we're doing right now. Tell me what loss would be okay. You, you okay losing to South Carolina at home? You okay losing to Auburn on the road with a brand new coach and a huge lack of talent or a talent deficiency compared to Georgia? Are, are you okay losing in Jacksonville? What about Kentucky? Kentucky's supposed to be a lot better, even though they lost Will Levis. They're supposed to be pretty good this year. We okay losing at home to Kentucky? Now, the game everybody's going to immediately think of is on the road at Tennessee because we're thinking about 2022 Tennessee and, and everything that they did and, you know, going and beating uh, Clemson in the orangest of all bowls. But the reality is that, Tennessee overachieved last year and that team lost a lot besides just losing their quarterback lost a lot at wide receiver a loss a lot on the offensive line and lost a lot on the defensive line Joe Milton had a great game in that orangest of all bowls against Clemson but I don't know that we should you know pencil him in for the Heisman just yet um I mean obviously on paper that game on the road at the team that finished in the top 10 last year is, is, is the one to circle, but it's a much different team. George is a much different team. That game also does not happen until late November. It's the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Georgia finishes the season at Tennessee and at tech. So it's a long time till that game happens. So we, we, we've got a long time to look forward and go, okay, what's Tennessee look like at that point? I don't think it'd be shocking for them to come in with two or three losses at that point. So we may look at that game a lot differently 
once we get to it than we do now. But just in general, I'm a little skeptical about Tennessee this season because I think, and there's a few teams, we'll talk about one more here later in the show, there's a few teams that are being assumed that, you know, they they kind of took a step up next year or last year, and then the assumption is they'll continue to take steps forward. Uh, and I, I don't know that you can always bank on that because at least in college football, you know, sometimes an overachieving team one year turns into an underachieving team the next year. But whether it's an over or underachievement is really based on our expectations, right? So, you know, for Georgia, not making the playoff is underachieving. That wouldn't be – that's not the same for everybody. You can't look at Tennessee and say, well, if they don't make the playoff, they've underachieved. I mean, some Tennessee fans might, but they're really dumb, so we're not going to really worry about that. Um, a couple of things just in the wide world of college football. I mean, this is this is the last year for the four-team playoff. Um, you know, it's the last year for divisions and the SEC and the Big Ten. It's the last year before, you know, some pretty seismic conference realignment happens with Ohio, with Oklahoma and Texas coming to the SEC, with USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten. You know, this this round of realignment is going to question everything we know about math. Looking at you, Big Ten, with I think sixteen teams next year. Uh, the Southeastern Conference that almost spreads to the Pacific Ocean now. Um, it questions math. We question geography, all for the greater. Uh, dollar in college football. There's a ton of change that's happening and about to happen in college football. And in a way, the 2023 season almost seems like an afterthought before it has even happened. Everybody's looking at what's coming and they're all thinking about 24. But Georgia has a chance to do something special this year. Georgia has some a chance to do something that no team has done in college football. Not Nick Saban. Not Steve Spurrier, not Urban Meyer, not those great Nebraska teams going back into the 80s, not Bear Bryant. None of those guys have ever done what Georgia has an opportunity to do this year. Uh, The last team that did it was Minnesota during the Depression. For Georgia, this season is and will continue to be about uh, one thing, and that's the 2023 Pete. And that's what Georgia has on in front of them another national championship does it seem selfish yes does it seem implausible absolutely does it seem like something we should all get our hopes up about of course not but last year was already that right i I mean really who thought after breaking the streak after 41 years we could potentially turn around and do it in less than 365 days this team is going to come into this season with the most talent and the best chance since Alabama in 2013 to do this. Probably the only other team that had a legitimate shot to do this other than the mid-90s Nebraska team was that 2013 Alabama team. They were undefeated, and the way that ended was probably the greatest college football play in my lifetime at least, with the kick six. So all people are going to want to see from the first game of the season all the way through the national championship game this year. If you're not a Georgia fan all over the country, Georgia losing is the biggest story that any that, that's out there. So it's Georgia fans versus the world right now, and we need to embrace it. We need to enjoy it. 
But this season's about one thing, and that's winning a third straight national championship. All right, in our last segment today, we are going to preview the Atlantic Coast Conference. Before I get into it, just a quick word. Today's show is going to be a little bit longer than each of the other ones. Uh, We're going to keep it close to 40, 45 minutes going forward, but uh, had a lot to talk about. Had to go ahead and get the crash stuff out of the way. So this show is going to be a little longer than the others. But uh, come back next week. I I won't take so much of your time up, I promise. so the ACC in 2023. So this is going to be interesting because this the, the thing I talked about a second ago with the Big Ten and the SEC doing away with divisions, the ACC has gone ahead and done that this year. So other than the COVID season of 2020, when they temporarily added Notre Dame for that season and did away with divisions, this is the first time that we've moved away from the Atlantic and the coastal divisions, which is a good thing for me because I'll be honest with you, I've never figured out which one was which. I could never remember which teams were in which. So Atlantic and coastal, you know, sometimes you say you barely knew them. I never knew you. So uh, glad to see you go. When we get into the conference previews. I don't want to waste your time uh, with a lot of teams that, frankly, I don't care about. So if I don't care about them, I know you don't care about them. So for each conference, we're going to have what I call the tiers of care. Basically, this is going to be, let's take everybody out that doesn't matter at all. And let's focus on, we're looking nationally, the teams that could contend for the conference championship And obviously, if you're contending for conference championships, it means you are contending for the playoff. Now, this time next year, it's going to be a completely different dynamic because we're going to be looking at a 12-team playoff where there's going to be 30 teams that could potentially make it in November, which I think is going to be absolutely awesome. But for this year, we can keep pairing it down a little bit because you're going to have to be a conference champion and, you know, a one-loss team or better most likely there's never been in the history of the playoff. We've never had a two loss team make the playoff. So I would assume in the last year of the playoff, that's what we could expect. So let's jump into it. And uh, let me tell you the teams in the ACC this time, this one I have titled nothing to live for Virginia, BC, Virginia tech, Syracuse, nothing. Okay, now why are they different than this next one? Because the next one, they're at least good at basketball. So the next group is, is it basketball season yet? And the answer is not quite. Duke, Wake Forest, NC State, and Pitt. There's two teams that I think you can put in a category called New Face, New Hope, question mark. That's Louisville with their new coach, Jeff Brom, and Tech with their new coach, Brent Key. Now, We're not going to talk about either one of those teams, but I think unlike Virginia Tech, Virginia, BC, Syracuse, and the basketball schools, I think those two teams are at least hopeful that whatever happens this year may lead to something. I got to be honest with you, as I'm starting to kind of get ready for these conference previews, I don't think there is another conference that is maybe the Big Ten, Um, but really top to bottom throughout all of the conferences, what you're going to see is there's, there's more parity this year than there has been in previous years, right? You obviously have a few teams at the very tippy-top of college football, but even those teams have some pretty significant question marks, Georgia included, coming into this season. So the ACC is probably the only conference where you can just lop off like three-fourths of the conference and talk about a couple of teams. So 
I wanted to go with this one today. One, alphabetically, ACC made sense going first. Two, I think we can kind of dig through some of the the not important teams kind of quickly and, and get on to the teams that we should care about. And that's the last category here, and that's what we're going to get into. The first team in the ACC that I think you should care about is North Carolina. Mac Brown is back, and so is Drake May, uh, who I think is probably going to be the second overall pick in the NFL draft next year, unless something terrible happens to him uh, or Caleb Williams. But uh, they have a new offensive coordinator in Phil Longo. That's the guy that was at uh, Wisconsin last year. And based on Wisconsin's offense the last few years, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I assume Mac Brown knows what he's doing. Uh, Carolina's defense just by logic, would have to be better than it's been the last couple years. Uh, They had defensive coordinator hire last year, Gene Chizik. It didn't get much better. The former Auburn coach that won a national championship back in 2010 with the Tigers. uh, You couldn't see a lot of improvement on the field last year or in the statistics. I I would imagine their defense would have to get a little bit better this year. And if it does, Drake May and that offense should be able to put up some points, which Again, we talk about the overall weakness, I believe, at the bottom half or maybe the bottom three-fourths of the ACC. A a great offense and a decent defense is going to take you a long way in this conference. So um, I don't think they're quite at the top of the ACC, but they're definitely firmly in that tier two category. Uh, Their schedule, they start out with what is going to kind of be one of the premier games uh, of the opening weekend. I think game day's already announced that they're going to be in Charlotte when North Carolina plays South Carolina on the opening Saturday of the season. They also host right after that Minnesota and App State before beginning conference play. And so that's kind of a challenging non-conference schedule, um, not just for North Carolina, but for anybody to play, you know, two power five conference opponents and then, you know, a, a group of five team in App State that's perennially good and has beat people before, uh, beat some people last year, if I remember correctly. Um, so that's a pretty challenging start to the season. They host Miami, and then they end the season with back-to-back road games at Clemson and at NC State. Um, when you look at their schedule, just because of the the difficulty of starting with South Carolina, who I'm pretty high on going into the season, um, it kind of feels like an eight and four kind of nine and three schedule, but if they upset South Carolina on that opening weekend, uh, you, ten and two is definitely on the table for this team, and maybe even eleven and one if they can upset, um, if they can navigate the schedule. I, I guess they could go eleven and one, lose to Clemson, and they literally wouldn't have to upset anybody other than South Carolina. But I, I just think from what we've seen out of North Carolina the last couple of years, the consistency has been the problem. Very much like Texas A and M and the SEC. North Carolina, you know, one week at their best, they can beat anybody. The next week at their worst, they could absolutely lose to just about anybody. They did that last year. They played Notre Dame really well, and then they turned around and lost to teams they shouldn't have been losing to. So uh, that is the first team uh, in the ACC that you need to care about. To me, North Carolina, probably not a CFP contender, but definitely could have the kind of season that could be knocking on the door of the New Year's Six. The second team you need to care about is Miami. Now, to me, the reason you need to care about Miami is a little bit different than North Carolina. you got to care about Miami because Mario Cristobal in his second season, you you got to be on alert for that second-year bump, right? We've talked about it in the past with various different coaches and teams. It seems like the biggest increase that you see in a team's 
year one to year two. We saw it at Georgia, saw it at Alabama back in the day with Nick Saban, saw it last year with Tennessee. So that second year bump, will we see Cristobal really turn it around and do something special at Miami this year? Frankly, he's got Tyler Van Dyke um, back at quarterback. I think that's a good thing. There were times last year where that was a good thing. Then there were other times where it didn't really seem like it was a good thing. But the overall talent level at Miami has been increased. I don't know that they have the guys at this point, right? I just don't think that there's enough depth in the roster to be able week in and week out in the ACC to not have those games where you're just like, how in the world did we think this team was good? And then they kind of like what we're talking about with North Carolina, just not able to be consistent. So um, I think it's probably, maybe we see an increase this year for Miami, but I think probably next year would be the first year that you could really point to Miami being a true contender for the ACC championship. Now their schedule is very interesting. They're at A&M. Uh, week two, which has already been announced as a 3.30 game. So that means A&M and Miami is going to lead into the biggest game, non-conference game of the season, and that's Texas and Alabama week two. Um, but the schedule is tough. They go at USC, then home to Clemson in mid-October, back-to-back weeks. And then to start November, they're at NC State and then at Florida State back-to-back weeks. Uh, those four games are obviously going to define the season, and they happen within a five-week span for Miami. So they're going to they're gonna have that early test against A&M that really probably won't have any kind of bearing on their overall season. But once they get into the meat of that ACC play, you know, if they can go two and two in those four games, then you could be looking at a nine and three kind of season. I think you could also see what happened to Florida State last year, and they just go over in all four of those games. And now you're talking about potentially knocking on the door of, you know, hopefully bowl eligibility at that point. For me, there are two contenders in the, in the ACC. I don't think I'm a genius for thinking about this. We got Clemson and we got Florida state. Let's start with Clemson. The defense will be great as it usually is. Um, and there is a ton of optimism. And I think there should be a ton of optimism about First-year offensive coordinator Garrett Riley. Garrett Riley, Lincoln Riley's younger brother who just led TCU last year, that Max Duggan team, all the way to the national championship game. Um, Dynamic on offense, obviously not during the national championship game, but every other game they played last year. Incredibly entertaining. Really utilized the best pieces of Max Duggan. Continued to put him, you know, in the best positions possible. Got Max Duggan all the way to, and I'm not saying Max Duggan didn't have anything to do with it, but Riley's offense gave Max Duggan a platform to get all the way to the Heisman Trophy ceremony in New York. So um, when you're a Clemson fan and then you look at maybe a quarterback like Cade Klubnick with more talent than Max Duggan, it really makes you excited what Garrett Riley might be able to do with this offense. The Tigers bring back Will Shipley, who is definitely the best back in the ACC, one of the best backs, if not the best back in the entire country. Um, It's all going to be about Riley integrating his offense, right? So if he can get the offense in and they click early, then this could be a very special season for Clemson. If there are some growing pains in year one, you've got a a first-year starter, really. I know by the end of last year, Klubnick was the guy. But you've got a young quarterback. You've got a new coordinator. There's a reason to be a little bit skeptical about how quickly that may gel and come together. 
But if it does, Clemson's ceiling to me is higher than every other team in the ACC. Um, their schedule really sets up nicely for them. That the first three games of the season are basically just uh, dress rehearsals for the showdown against Florida State in Death Valley. Um, that game's on September 23rd. Outside of that, there's a three-week stretch in the middle of the season where they go at Miami, at NC State, and then come home to Death Valley to play Notre Dame. That's kind of the toughest stretch of the season. Um, to me, it's, it seems like that road trip that I just talked about will kind of decide the at Miami, at NC State. If they can win those two games, I, I don't see how they're not in the ACC title game, remember, no divisions this year, so the two teams with the two best records will play, even if they played in the regular season, and that's exactly what I expect to happen. Um, but, so the NC State and Miami games are going to, to me, be the determining factor on whether or not Clemson's in the ACC championship game on December 2nd. Whether or not Clemson is in the national championship picture at the end of this season is going to depend, I think, more on the game at the the last two games of the season where they play at home versus UNC and go on the road to play South Carolina who upset them last year. So um, that's Clemson, you know, in, in a nutshell there. Moving to Florida State, you know, this is really the first time since 2014 that Florida State has had any sort of ex- expectations coming into the season. Um, and those expectations are based on that 10-win season from 2022. But when you dig into the season last year, it's weird. I don't know if you've looked at it. If you go look at it, it just looks weird. It even looks weird on the screen when you pull it up. And you're like, oh, they won a lot of games. What the crap happened in the middle of this season? Oh, they won a lot of games. Florida State lost three games last year, but they lost three straight games in October um, to start the month and then went on a winning streak the rest of the year. To, they, they beat eventual SEC West champion LSU on the opening weekend in a, a crazy game that ended with a, I think it was a block extra point, uh, given Florida State the one point win in the Superdome last year. Um, and then they ended the season beating Oklahoma in, in what was a pretty entertaining bowl game. And in between, they beat no ranked teams and lost to the three ranked teams that they played. So it was just a weird year. And that weird year is the the entire basis of what we expect in 2023. Well, you didn't beat any ranked teams in 2022. So maybe you expect you could do that, maybe. But it it's a long jump from beating no ranked teams one year to going into Death Valley and beating Clemson, and which I assume will be a nationally televised game day is their primetime game on September 23rd. So... I, I don't know. They open the season again against LSU. This time the game's in Orlando instead of uh, New Orleans. If they manage to win that game, the pressure on this team, the expectations are going to be for a college football playoff appearance. Because LSU, you know, despite what the the media voted at um, SEC Media Days last week, I, th- I think LSU should be the favorite to win the West based on what they're bringing back compared to what Alabama's bringing back. So you've got LSU, the favorite in the West, or you know one of the two best teams in the West is for sure, potential national championship contender. If Florida State comes out and beats them the first week of the season, just watch out. Because by the time you get to that Clemson game in Death Valley, you could have a Florida State team that's ranked in the top five. I have no idea where they're going to rank Clemson. If it's me, they're definitely a top 10 team. So you're talking about a top 10 matchup in week four. Um, 
which would be awesome. Um, after that, after they play Clemson, the schedule does not look difficult at all. They host Miami, and they finish the season on the road at Florida. Um, you know, that's a Florida team that I don't think has a whole lot of expectations, but by the end of the year, maybe they figure something out. So maybe that game ends up being a little bit more difficult than it would appear to be on paper. But uh, everything for Florida State boils down to to this. If you beat Clemson, then you're in the ACC title game. If you lose to Clemson, you still may be in the ACC title game. If you beat LSU and Clemson, then you're a national championship contender. That's that's where it all falls. I mean, it it, it in a way, it should be a a maybe if you count the Miami game because of the rivalry game. It's a three game season for Florida State. That's assuming a lot, and I got to be honest with you, it scares me a little bit to even think that a team that has been so inconsistent over the past decade, just to assume nine wins is kind of a lot, right? So I'm a little hesitant. I think. You know, it would not shock me if Florida State manages to be this year's Texas A&M, a team that starts out really highly rated to start the season, and then it just, for whatever reason, doesn't work. Jordan Travis, the quarterback for Florida State, very good. I don't think he's as good as everybody else thinks he is, but we'll see. That Everybody that grew up in, you know, or, or has, like, fond memories of the 90s wants Florida State back because, it you know, you went – 10 years there where they didn't finish out of the top three. I mean, they were the team of the nineties. And I think for a lot of people, college football is all about nostalgia and, and looking back to a time when Florida state was one of the best teams in the country. I think people are very eager for those things to happen again. I think that's happening with USC right now. I think we see it happening. Uh, or we've seen it happen with Michigan. You know, when, when Alabama was first getting back, there was a lot of people was like, okay, now this is what college football is supposed to be. That's why everybody looks at Nebraska every year and goes, okay, are you going to start being Nebraska again? Um, college football is best when the biggest brands are on top. And Clemson has been the brand in the ACC. And I'll be honest with you, I don't really think that's going to change, at least not this year. I, obviously, I think the most likely scenario is we get Clemson and Florida State in a rematch in the ACC title game. I think the gap between those two teams and the rest of the conference is is rather significant. Um, it makes sense to me that playing at home in the regular season, Clemson would beat Florida State, and then they'd have to beat them again, basically, to make the playoff. Uh, it was kind of the opposite thing that happened in the 2020 season when you had Clemson lose in the regular season to Notre Dame and turn around and beat them in the uh, ACC championship game and make the playoff. In that situation, I guess both of them made the playoff in 2020. Um, but it's it's pretty close for me between these two teams. I'll go with the history. I'll go with the pedigree of uh, Clemson, and, and I'll pick them to win the conference. For me, I think – the bigger picture, if you're the ACC commissioner, you want a team in the college football playoff this year, right? And after last year not getting one for the first time, maybe, maybe ever, I'm doing this off the top of my head, maybe not ever, let's skip that. Um, but I think the best case scenario is a 12-0 and team versus an 11-1 and team because at that situation you're getting somebody in. So if, you know, one way or another, whoever wins in the regular season runs the table, between Clemson and Florida State, they're 12-0, and and the loser only loses that game. 
Well, now you're pretty much guaranteed that the ACC champions are going to have one loss. And, and in that situation, I think whoever wins that game probably gets in to the college football playoff. So that is my ACC preview. Thank you so much for hanging in with me. I know this was a longer episode. Like I said, we'll shorten it up moving forward for the preview shows. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week. I hope you're excited for the start of the college football season, just like I am. And I will see you next week on It's Saturday in Athens.